We've titled it Following because Jesus is confronting the self-righteous legalism of the day, the religious self-righteous legalism of the day. And if you picture the Sermon on the Mount, you can picture Jesus on a hilltop. Uh, It produced a natural amphitheater. And then right in front of him are his disciples. Just beyond the disciples are the multitudes, a great multitude that came to hear this amazing preacher, but not just a preacher, but he also worked miracles to authenticate the claims that he made. That was the whole point of the miracles of Christ's ministry was to authenticate his claims. So just beyond that are the multitudes that came to listen to this great preacher who also had all these miracles to authenticate the claims. And just beyond that, you can imagine a a gaggle of Pharisees that are watching and listening that have come simply to point out the flaws in his theology that they have shown up not to be taught by Christ not to learn even though they've seen the miracles that authenticate his claim he made two very distinct claims during his earthly ministry in particular during what I would call his public presentation time 18 months in the Galilee area during which this sermon will be preached He made two very particular claims that he is the Son of God come in the flesh and the Messiah. Those are the two claims. And then in order to authenticate these claims, he is going about doing these miracles. These miracles clearly authenticate the claim. So clearly that when he enters into Jerusalem during Passion Week, they welcome him as the Messiah. Because they so clearly see the miracles authenticate the claim. So... Out in the back, though, are the Pharisees. Now, these Pharisees did not come to learn. These Pharisees came to object. These Pharisees, you could think of them as like the critic. Now, I've never been in a play. I've never been an actor. But I could imagine if a a critic came to watch a play, he might sit in the back and he'll be the only one with a pen ready to write up all of his critiques, right? That's kind of what the Pharisees are doing. They're sitting in the back. They've got their pen out. They're ready to, to write up the critique of Jesus. Here is where he got it all wrong. He did a marvelous job entertaining us with his miracles that were clearly from Beelzebub. But when it got to theology, he really messed it up. Because he attacked the law. So Jesus lays out this sermon, and it's actually a refutation against the religious legalism of the day. And it will force the the multitudes and the disciples, and including the Pharisees in the back, it will force them to make a decision. Will you continue in your religious legalism, your self-righteousness, or will you follow him? And so that's why we titled this sermon series, Following. Will you follow Christ or will you? And I think it's an important question for each of us today that each one of us have to wrestle with because the world's operating system is self-righteousness. It, we, all, we all grew up, the world it, we're surrounded in is steeped in self-righteousness. Earning your value Think about your job. 
How valuable are you? Do you quantify that? Everywhere we look, we see the self-righteousness playing out. And so it's steeped in us. And so each one of us are what one of my mentor pastors used to call recovering legalists. Every single one of us struggle with this. And so the question that, that each one of us has to wrestle with is, are you going to follow Jesus? Or are you going to stay stuck in your own self-righteous legalism. Now, throughout this series, we've kind of been pointing different ways to assess whether or not you're a legalist, whether or not you're still wrestling with your own self-righteousness. I think one of the, one of the biggest ways, I shouldn't say one of the biggest, I think one of the assessments we can use is just looking at the Pharisees and, and seeing how they showed up to critique They showed up to creek. They showed up with a critical spirit. And so one of the questions is, if you're, or one of the ways to assess if you are wrestling with self-righteousness is, do you show up simply to critique? Do you go to a Bible study? Do you come to church? Do you go to Sunday school? Simply to critique. Well, man, he got it so wrong. I was listening to Christian this morning. I can't tell you how wrong he was. And I got out my red pen. And and you know what? I'm going to talk to him later on. Because should we even let him teach in here right now? That is a great assessment tool. Are you showing up simply to critique? And maybe people do get it wrong. Can you give grace when people do get it wrong? So Jesus is, is right, his whole sermon is a refutation against this, and he starts out actually with this introduction that we call the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are a total reframing of who is actually blessed. And this part, you know, the, for ancient Israel, the, the idea was you are blessed by the amount of wealth you had or the prestige that you have. You're blessed, and therefore uh, it reveals that you are more righteous. God blesses the righteous. So the wealthier you are, the more righteous you are. And Jesus is totally flipping that idea upside down. It's not that you are more, you are more blessed because you're, or I should say, it's not you are wealthy because you're more blessed because you're more righteous. Jesus flips that idea upside down. And then he, he works that introduction into what I think is the thesis statement and what many theologians think is the thesis statement. I shouldn't say like this is an original idea with me. This is actually, most theologians believe this, found in verse 20, chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And right at that moment, because the Pharisees were the religious elite, they were the self-righteous, legalist, religious elite, and all of the multitudes looked up to them. And so upon that statement, it would have been shock. For the Pharisees sitting in the back, oh, that pin came out. Let's ride him up. How dare he? For the multitudes, it would have been like, what? What on earth? If the Pharisees can't do it, how on earth can I do it? Can I actually get to heaven? The Pharisees, they're, they're so awesome. They do all the stuff. In fact, they do so much stuff, they keep making up more stuff to do, more religious things to do, and I can't keep up. 
If I can't even keep up with the Pharisees and you have to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, how on earth? And then Jesus begins to unpack that thesis statement because it's not based on our righteousness. That was the problem the, legal, the Pharisees had. Is they were trying to base their righteousness on their own works. They had a self-righteousness that they couldn't let go of. And Christ is saying, it's not about your righteousness, but about God's. And so he begins to unpack this thesis statement, and he starts off with these, you have heard it said, but I tell you statements. And these statements are reorienting our theology. See, there was this idea that it was all about behavior and not about your heart. And so as long as you jumped through enough hoops, as long as you could draw a line and stay on this side of the line, even if your heart was wicked, you were still righteous. So you could say, hey, I've never murdered anyone. I'm really righteous. And Jesus says, no, you hate people. You have a wicked heart that reveals that you're not righteous. I've never committed adultery. No, but you lust all the time. And so he's specifically rearranging this, this idea that you can disconnect your behavior from your heart. Now, what the self-righteous person typically does is they, they can have an ugly heart, a heart filled with hate. But they white knuckle, they grind it out and make sure that their religious behavior looks okay. That eventually will fail. In Colossians, Paul tells us that those, those uh, religious practices actually are of no use against the flesh. Eventually it will fail. Have you ever known the person that did all the religious things? They did it all! And then one day you heard about how they had just totally went off the rails. They did all the, the religious stuff, and now they've embraced the LGBT rainbow. They're doing all kinds of drugs. They hate everyone. And you're like, how could they have fallen so far? And the truth is, they haven't fallen so far. They were doing all of the, the religious stuff because they were still trying to earn their righteousness. They were still steeped in self-righteousness, and they were relying on their own flesh to be self-righteous. And all they've done is they've gone from expressing their own self-righteousness in one way, in a religious way, to expressing their self-righteousness in what we would consider sinful ways. They haven't fallen far at all. Both expressions are, the, are opposite sides of the same coin. Self-righteousness. And so Jesus says, you cannot disconnect the head from the heart. And then he goes on and he starts explaining how this, this plays out in religiosity. How this plays out in, in uh, maybe we should say, spiritual practices. Because there are spiritual practices that help us mature and help us grow in the faith, right? So what, what the self-righteous like to do is take the religious practice and then display it for all to see. Because it's more about their own self-righteousness than about God's righteousness. It's more about their self-righteousness than growing in the righteousness that God has imputed to you. And so you take spiritual practices that God has actually given us that are good, like fasting, prayer, giving to the poor. 
Those are good spiritual practices that can help us grow in God's grace. But instead, what they do is they put it on display for all to see. Do you see how great I am? I gave money to the poor. And Jesus says they have their reward. What's their reward? That everyone looks at them and says, wow, they're pretty righteous people. But there's a greater reward for those who practice these things in secret. Because they want to grow in God's grace. They don't do them to display their own self-righteousness. They do them to display God's grace towards them. Then he goes on and explains how this, how this impacts our, our, our relationship with money. And we get to how, and what we will start into today, how this impacts our relationship with others. So that's where we'll jump into today. It starts off in chapter 7. We're, we're almost done with the Sermon on the Mount. We'll wrap up by Christmas time. 7, verse 1 through 6. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So we start off this section, we start off with this relationship, this self-righteousness and how this plays out in interpersonal communication or interpersonal relationships, I mean. It starts off with judge not that you be not judged. Maybe the most quoted and I would dare to say the most misquoted verse in all of scripture. We hear it all the time, right? Judge not yet, yet lest ye be judged. That's the old King James, right? Judge not yet, lest ye be judged. And we hear it all the time. And really, what do people use it as? As an excuse to get away with things. You don't like what I'm doing? I may be steeped in sin. But don't judge me. Because you'll be judged if you judge me. And so we have misquoted this, we have misused it, and I think we really need to dig a little bit deeper to find out what it means. First of all, if you want to use this, read it in its full context. And we'll just skip right down. Judge not that, ye, that you be not judged. And then if we skip right down to verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then what, what will happen when you take the log out of your own eye? Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I mean, when we read this in context, he's not, it's not this permission to just do whatever you want and tell people, well, don't judge me. Don't judge me. So that's why it's so misused. It's so misquoted. It's so misused. But what does he mean, first of all, by judge not? Well, to judge, there's a couple different ways you can think of judging. Judging can mean just evaluation. We make these judgments all the time. We make evaluations all the time, right? This car fits my needs better than that car. That's an evaluation. That's an assessment. That's a judgment. So there's, there's a judgment. There's an evaluation when it comes to judging. There's a, an analysis. But it could also mean to condemn or to punish. 
So oftentimes when we talk about judging, we, we think about this idea of to condemn or to punish one, to punish someone. So which is Jesus referring to when he says, judge not, that you may not be judged? Which one is he talking to, about? And I think he's actually talking about both. And the first hint that he's talking about the, the, the condemnation type of judgment is in that next line, judge not that you be not judged. The, the construction in the Greek here, that you be not judged, per, uh, makes the, the reader think of a future judgment. So what he's talking about here is judge not, don't, don't condemn others, lest you be condemned yourself. And the, the audience right away would have, t- would have uh, associated this judging uh, that was going to happen to ourselves as a future judgment with God. Judge not, condemn not, that you be not condemned when you face the Heavenly Father. So the Pharisees, and I think the Pharisees among us today, need this warning. Because they loved to minimize their sin while pointing out all the flaws of everyone else's sin. And we love to point out the Pharisees that do this, don't we? But if we're being honest, we do it as well. Would you look at that horrible driver? Man, so stupid. Can't believe there'd be idiots like that. Meanwhile, we're texting and driving. Maybe you're good about not texting and driving. You put your phone way away, but you eat and drive, apply makeup and drive, driving while just plain distracted. A guy, our mailbox gets hit on a regular basis. I don't know what it is, silver saddle. Maybe, maybe it sticks out too far. I don't know. But the last time, I was really thankful. There have been times when I've found my mailbox in the neighbor's yard. This last time, the guy actually came into my house and, like, really apologized, and he paid me for it. But I asked him, like, because it gets hit all the time. I was like, I'm just curious. Why did you hit it? And he said, I was just driving home from work, and I was just consumed thinking about the things of work and didn't realize I had veered off the road and hit your, hit your mailbox until I hit your mailbox Probably good that he hit my mailbox because there's a little slope there. He could have gone way off. Anyways, the whole point is we do this too. You drive distracted. The other day I was driving to the Matador to meet someone for coffee, and I got all the way down to Safeway before I was like, wait, where am I going again? I was just caught up in thought. I've been a bad driver. So have you. And yet we are so quick when someone is a bad driver around us to be like, you idiot. What are you thinking? Stupid drivers. Probably a Phoenician, right? (laughs) But I think verse 2 explains this a little bit more. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So the idea here is what we've talked about before, the lex talionis, the law of retribution. The judgment you make is the same way you will be judged. In America, we might say no one is above the law. All people have to obey the same laws, and the law is applied to all people the same. 
Therefore, if you are harsh in your condemnation towards other people, the same condemnation will be applied to you. Now, some people might say, well, what about grace? If, if I am judging people here on earth with a lot of condemnation, but it's imperfect condemnation, and at the end of my life, I go to meet God, and I'm standing before God, how can he who is perfect judge me with my own imperfect condemnation? And I'd say you're right. God does offer grace. God offers mercy. And he offers them freely. If you've been affected by God's grace and mercy, then you will live that grace and that mercy out by offering it to others. One of the greatest signs that you are still living according to your own self-righteousness is that you are quick to condemn others. You are quick to point out their flaws. You are like the Pharisees in the back with your pen with lots of red ink ready to write up a full report on why they are so horrible. Now you may not say it. You may even say you live in God's grace. But when you hear of someone in sin, is your first reaction a broken heart because you realize the brokenness of the situation? Or maybe your first reaction is actually vindication. Because you knew. You knew that that type of behavior was going to lead down that path. And so now you're kind of smug. Because I told you. So instead of having a broken heart, there's actually vindication. Because see what happens when you're not living a holy and pure life like me. And some might say, but we have to take sin seriously, so we need to point it out in others. It's loving to tell people about their sin. And I'd say, you're right, Jesus took sin seriously. Grace takes sin seriously. But it also recognizes that beating people over the head and shaming people for their sin is ineffective against sin. And actually, shame drives people towards sin. The only way to truly take sin seriously is to show God's grace and God's mercy. And the only way to truly be free from sin is not by our own self-righteousness. It's not by working harder at not sinning. You cannot hate your sin enough to be free from your sin. The only way to truly be free from sin is to be freed from it by God's grace and by God's mercy. And that's the only way. And what is he saying here? He's saying that same harsh judgment will be used against you. I think we see this in personal interactions as well. The person who is harsh in their judgment will be judged harshly by society at large. The person who is harsh in their judgment in interpersonal relationships will be judged harshly by that person in the relationship. So because they, are, they judge harshly, they're quick to condemn, and they're quick to point out flaws, they're quick to cut others out, and people begin to view them with suspicion. 
People get nervous around them because when we mess up, grace is not offered. When we get things wrong, grace is not offered, just criticism, just condemnation. And let's be honest, who wants that? So self-righteous legalism drives a wedge between people. If you are constantly struggling to keep friends, that might be a good assessment of whether or not you're a self-righteous legalist. If you are constantly driving people away because you have a critical spirit and people are just tired, they come to you to, to be built up, to be encouraged, and they walk away deflated, and so they quit coming to you. It's a sign that you might be self-righteous. So when Jesus is saying, judge not, he is addressing condemnation. Condemn not, lest ye be condemned. But I also think this illustration that he gives us shows that he is addressing the evaluation definition as well. That's why I say it's both and. Because he's also addressing evaluation. So we pick up in verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? Now, we have a humorous illustration here of what happens when we are overly critical of others. We are unfit to be overly critical. We have a log in our own eye making us blind. Yet we think we can pluck the tiny splinter out of someone else's eye. It is ridiculous to think about. It is funny. And if you actually take, I'm so glad that somebody in our aesthetics team a long time ago picked these really heavy logs to decorate our stage with. But if you think about that, I've got a plank, I've got a big log in my eye, but hey, I can barely see around it and I see the splinter in yours. Uh, I'm going to come get this splinter out of your eye. Don't worry. I've got some sharp tweezers, and I'm really good with these sharp tweezers. I've been living with this log for a long time, okay? I've learned how to weave around it. Don't worry. I'm coming directly at your eye with some tweezers. Tweezers. (laughs) The log's getting heavy. But you see how ridiculous that is. And that's what we do, right? We, we have these big logs in our eyes, and we think that we can actually see this little tiny speck, this little splinter in someone else's eye. And so we want to get these tweezers, and we want to use the Bible, which is a great tool. The, the Bible is this great tool, but, it, but if we have this big log in our own eye, and we want to use this Bible, it's actually going to end up being kind of offensive, And actually, people are going to run from it because just like my kids, when they get a splinter and it hurts and I pull out the tweezers, I'm like, I got to take this out. But if I'm blind and can't even really see the splinter, what am I going to do? I'm just going to hit them with it and hit them with it and hit them with it. And eventually, they're going to be really shy anytime I take out the tweezers. So what is he saying here? He's saying, you got to take the log out first. If you want to act like a physician, 
with the word of God, which actually can, can remove splinters, first you need to hold up that word to your own life. Hold up the word as a mirror to yourself so that the, that the log can be removed. So that's what the Pharisees were doing. They had these huge logs stuck in their eyes that were so big that they were blind, yet they thought they could pick the splinter out of others' eyes. They had this overly critical spirit. And I think it's important to note there is a difference between being critical critical thinking and critical spirit. And Jesus is getting at this. Sometimes we like to hide behind this idea that we're just critical thinkers. I just discern. I just think critically. But when you come to the table and you don't have anything good to say, when you come to the table just to criticize, you are not being a critical thinker. You're just being critical. So does this mean we should never discern? Does this mean we should never critically think? We should never make an evaluation about other people because we have logs in our own eyes? And Jesus addresses this question. You hypocrite. So he addresses this question, but he, he addresses it first with this idea of hypocrite, right? We, we looked at this idea earlier. It's, it, Jesus coined this term before it just meant actor. So someone who was in a play, they would be a hypocrite. They'd be an actor. And he coins this term you referencing religious people who act the part, but have never actually had this heart change. So he says, you hypocrite, you actor, you're just acting like you love God, but you really don't. So he's addressing these religious actors, but how do we know if we're religious actors? I think sometimes we can be harsh on the Pharisees. Remember, Jesus loved the Pharisees and he died for them too. And actually after the resurrection, several of them came to know Christ, put their faith and trust in Christ. But what about the Pharisees? Their roots were in a movement that loved God's law that loved scripture and wanted to remain true to scripture. Does that sound familiar? I mean, we are a fundamentalist church, after all. And why are we a fundamentalist church? Because we love scripture and we want to remain true to scripture. So it's important to know that it is not the love of scripture that makes someone a hypocrite. In this context, it is applying harsh judgments. That although God has given you grace and given you mercy, you're not willing to extend that grace and mercy to others. So you can love scripture, you can love theology. In fact, I think you should love scripture, you should love theology. But when discussing it with other people you disagree with, do you easily throw around terms like heresy and heretic? Do you think that because you have a different interpretation, you are better? Maybe you're more righteous. Maybe you're closer to God. And one day, when they become just as intelligent and righteous as you, they'll get it. Are you actually open to listening to other interpretations? Do you study the word of God to let it shape you and to mold you? Do you study the word of God to let it shape and mold your theology? Or are you busy reading your theology into it?
Do you come to the discussion with guns blazing, ready to put others in their place? Or maybe you don't come at all because you just don't want to hear some, what someone else might have to say about that particular verse. If so, you are probably closer to being a Pharisee than you'd like to admit. So loving scripture, loving theology like the Pharisees did doesn't make you a hypocrite. Receiving God's grace and not extending that grace back to others, that does. So Jesus calls them hypocrites for having a log in their own eye while judging others. So what's the solution? He gives it to us pretty clearly. First, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So to take the log out of your eye, how, how do you take the log out of your own eye? And then once you take the log out of your own eye, you can actually properly evaluate. You can properly use God's word to remove the splinter. Not to judge in a harsh way, not in an overly critical way, but in a way that is full of God's grace. So how do we take the log out? I think it starts with stopping our own judgmentalism of other people. And, and actually, I should, I should back that up. I think it starts with reading the word of God as a mirror reflecting ourselves. Reading the word of God to say, how did this change me? How does this mold me? Reading it with an open mind and letting the word dictate your theology. And that's when it becomes a mirror into our heart. It begins to convict and it actually removes the log from our eye. That is how we, re- that's, how, that's the beginning of how we remove the log from our eye. Another way is to submit to the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians, Paul tells us not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. As wine can begin to influence us, the more wine you drink, the more under its influence you are. Now, so can the Holy Spirit. Now, don't get me wrong. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells in you. And you can't actually get more indwelt or less indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You are You have the indwelling Holy Spirit in you. But you can be more under the influence of the Spirit and less under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul means by do not be drunk with wine, but be filled by the Holy Spirit. So as we submit to the nudgings and the promptings of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we become more filled. We become more under the influence of the Holy Spirit. But we can also build up walls towards the Holy Spirit and become less under the Holy Spirit's influence. But the more we become under the Holy Spirit's influence, the more the Holy Spirit actually removes the plank for us, removes that log for us. And I think another way is through prayer. We learned just a few weeks back that prayer is a way to align our will with God's will. Not my will, Lord, but yours. So it's a way to admit that we need to depend on him and to say, God, align my will with yours. And as we do that, God removes the log. 
So we remove that log through, through, through reading the word as a mirror, not reading the word as a weapon. Through submission to the Holy Spirit and through prayer, all of those are tools to help us remove that log. And that frees us up to help others remove their splinters as well. Now notice we are helping remove the splinters, not condemning people for having splinters. If you're trying to help others remove splinters without grace, then you still have a log in your own eye. Now verse 6 almost seems out of context, but I think it relates very well. So some err on the side of condemnation, while others might err on the side of gullibility. So verse 6 is a warning to not try and take the splinter out of someone else's eye who just wants a splinter in their eye. And Jesus says, Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and attack you. So dogs in ancient Israel were similar to the res dogs that we have around here. They were sort of wild scavengers. Pigs were thought of as unclean. So to throw what is a treasure to either dogs or pigs was an absurd idea. You wouldn't think of throwing anything of value to those animals. Yet here Jesus compares speaking God-given truth found in Scripture to those who don't want to listen. To those whose hearts are so hardened that when given God-given truth, they will actually attack the giver. He compares throwing things of values like pearls to animals that will attack you. So the warning is, do not engage with others who do not want to listen. So often we feel compelled to share the truth of the gospel, and we should. But sometimes we feel compelled to share it with someone who doesn't want to listen. And Jesus gives us the freedom to walk away from some people, to stop throwing our pearls before swine. Now think back to the audience listening to the sermon. We have the disciples, the multitudes, and the Pharisees in the back with their red pen ready to make some marks. And Jesus starts this section with, judge not. Pharisees, take the plank out of your own eye. And everybody should be uh, looking at this and, and advice we all need to heed. And then he says, and do not throw pearls before swine. Essentially, as you grow and mature in the word, you will evaluate who you can share the gospel truths of the word with. You can evaluate, are these people just waiting to attack you? Or are these people open to change? If you haven't removed the log from your own eye, you will not be able to discern the difference between a fellow disciple with a relatively minor problem and an enemy who will do great harm to the kingdom. If we are not submitting to the word and to the Holy Spirit and praying to align ourselves with God's will, we may blunder either on the side of judgmental hypocrisy or naive gullibility. There are dogs and pigs that only want to attack. There are legalists that only want to condemn. 
And as we pray, not my will, but yours, we begin to evaluate, is this a person who is open to the gospel with just a splinter? Or is this a person who desires to devour? But first, we must take the log out of our own eye. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. That your word is truth, that your word is life, that your word transforms us. And we recognize that we have all run around at some point with huge logs sticking out of our eyes, and yet we try to pull the splinter out of others. And we pray that as we hold your word up, and as we submit to your spirit, and as we pray that you would remove the log, that we may use the word of God appropriately. In your holy name we pray. Amen.